Somebody asks him, what is the great greatest commandment? Yeah. And he says, well, the great commandment is to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, body, everything. Love the Lord. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he says this, you know, it's related to us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The synoptic gospels, if you will. And then... It is also told to us by John. Now, it's not in the Gospel of John, but in John 1, you know, which was written by the same guy who wrote John. He says that this is the first, these are the great commandments, you know, to love the Lord your God and, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so, matter of fact, they go on in both of those places, Jesus and John go on and say, if you fill, fill, fulfill these two commandments, you have fulfilled all of the law. In other words, all of the law, that's the Ten Commandments, that's the 460-some laws that the, the Jews added on top of the Ten Commandments. If you fulfill love, you have fulfilled the law. So in other words, the law was just meant to lead us to love. You know, because we see the law and we think of judgment. You know, of, I don't know about you. I mean, I look at the law and it's like, oh my gosh, I'm in trouble. Mm -hmm. you, know, mm -hmm. you know, because nobody can fulfill the law. You know, we can't live perfectly. And so when we look at the law and the rules and especially as they parse it out, and that's just how the Jews did it with their four. Look at Christians. I mean, we take the laws and, I mean, we build on top of them. There's some places where if a woman wears lipstick or makeup, oh my gosh, we know she's not going to heaven. Or a nail home. Yeah. Or a man wears short sleeves, come on, or a 
necktie to church? Are you kidding me? You know, I mean, we add all kinds of things in, or else we say, well, they don't speak in tongues, so I guess they're not going to heaven. Somebody else, well, they aren't baptized by immersion, so I guess they're not going to heaven. You know, we add all these things into it. Yeah. And the Lord himself and, and the apostles through John tell us love is the fulfillment of the law. And, of course, there is the love chapter. I mean, if you've ever been to a wedding, somebody probably read a verse from the love, from the love chapter. <laughs> I forget why we say it that way. Somewhere along the line, we were at some, some service somewhere, somewhere, and somebody was talking about it. They said, now we're going to read the love chapter. So since then, the crazy people here you know, in the promised land, that's what we always say too. But Okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is reading out of the message, of course. It says, If I speak with human eloquence, an angelic ecstasy, and man, I'll tell you that, you know, that's pretty good speech right there. Mm -hmm. Eloquence and ecstasy. But don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor, and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Mm. Then it goes on in this long list. It says, love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score, of the sins of others, doesn't revel when others grovel, takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with everything, anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, keeps going to the end. Love. You know, love. And we have love. I mean, Think about that. If, if you're out there, anybody who's out there who loves someone else, you know what I'm talking about. Whether it's a husband for a wife, a wife for a husband, a parent for their child. If you love someone, you know you're willing to sacrifice for them. You're willing to step out of the way so that they can go ahead. You know, And it's when we do the opposite of those things, when we're grasping for ourselves, we're not acting in love. You know, when we're we're trying to just get ahead no matter what we do. We're not acting in love. You know, and then what's so powerful about it is God told us, Jesus told us, love the Lord with, with all your might, with all your heart, with all your soul. Mm -hmm. But then he went on and he said, but love others as well as you love yourself. Which was always a hiccup for me. Because I was had a hard time loving myself. And I don't think you're alone. I know I, I did not love myself at all before I was saved. Well, this I was saved when I was still struggling with that. But, um, yeah. So. And I bet there's, I know there's others out there, there's people listening. If you don't love yourself, how can you love others? You really can't. Not, mm -hmm. to, not with the um, peace and assurance that you do love. Well, I have to admit, I before I knew the Lord, I don't, I didn't even know what love was. I really didn't understand it. I didn't have any conception of what love was because I was such a, I was a schemer, a dreamer, and a user, you know. And I was that way with everybody all the time. I mean, people were. I always in your family, you're supposed to love. I just say, yeah, you know. I just didn't even know what love was. I knew loyalty, I knew, you know, caring about, but loving someone. Well, I don't think until we have the Lord 
and experience his love that we know what love is. Well, I know I didn't. I know I didn't either. There are other people who aren't Christians who I'm sure will tell you they love someone or love things or love this or love that. I don't understand, and I'm not going to judge them. Yeah. You know, but I know I didn't know what love was until I met the Lord. And in a personal sense, my relationship with you has taught me more about love in, in the real, in the natural, than anything else, really. I mean, knowing the Lord and loving the Lord has given me a love for others and a love for Him and a love for His Word and a love for those things. But knowing you and loving you and being the, the beneficiary of your love has taught me more about love in the natural than anything else than I could ever imagine. Well, and I can say ditto right back at you. I sure did not know love until I knew you. I, I know, you know. It was, I had no concept that people could love like you love. And before that, you know, in other situations where I thought I was in love, I, I was in love with love, I think. I, more than in love with people or a person, I was in love with love, and I would project that upon another person, maybe. You know, and I look back at it now, then if you would ask me, are you in love, I would have said, oh, yeah, you know. But I look back at it now, and I realize I wasn't expressing love to those people. I wasn't really living a life of love for anyone else besides myself, mm -hmm. and I hated myself. Mm -hmm. You know, so when we think about love, think about God. God, it tells us in First John very expressly, God is love. That's what love is. Love is God. Mm -hmm. God is love. You know. We have these, many people have pictures that maybe from how they're raised or how they conceive of God as this terrible judge, this, the Old Testament God that was destroy all the Amalekites and he would kill the dogs and kill everybody. You know, well, that's different. That's, that was a different time and a different place and God was doing a different thing. He was, humanity was totally depraved. These people, you know, were, were totally lost in depravity. And God was using that as a type to us that sin must be eradicated and that there must be no quarter given to sin. And in, in this dispensation, some might say, this the new covenant, it's all about love. There's nothing in it at all about striking back even when you're hit. As a matter of fact, he says, somebody slaps you on the face, stand there and take it, turn the other cheek to them. Mm -hmm. Somebody steals your shirt, give them your coat. I mean, it, it, there's nothing there for retaliation. There's nothing there, you know, for doing anything that is not an act of love. And anytime it's been construed to be something else, like the Crusades, like, come on, let's go, we're going to, for Jesus, we're going to go cut everybody's head off and take over Jerusalem again and everything. I mean, or the Inquisition. Well, if you don't believe the exact doctrine that we have, we're going to burn you at the stake. Mm -hmm. We're so nice. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and do it in the name of Jesus. We're going, it's okay, we're burning you in the name of Jesus. You know, that isn't love. We know it isn't. We look back now, we see that wasn't love. It never was. It couldn't be. So, as we're talking about this today, you know, we just want to share with people that love is what it's all about. And he concludes the chapter, which I think is really important, by saying, but for right now, until that completeness, we have three things to do to lead us toward that consummation. One, trust steadily in God. Two, hope unswaveringly. Three, love extravagantly. And the best of the three is love. Amen. Amen. That He wraps it up right there. Oh, yeah. And I guess we could wrap it up right here. <laughs> <laughs> Go forth and love extravagantly. Yes, yes. Okay. And now we're yeah. going to share a song. Oh, we are. <laughs> and guess it's what? It's all about love. A song about love. Wouldn't you know it? How'd that happen? What a coincidence. Got a firm foundation called the Rock of Ages. Born of the Spirit and plan. Shines through the darkness, the living light that comes. 
Chapter 31. 
Chapter 31. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. In the dust and debris-filled interior of Walter Reed Hospital, the men and women of the West Virginia National Guard still had visions of the battered and abused woman the jihadis had released after the first floor was cleared. The echoes of their pitiful stories enraged the passions of the troops as they battled their way to and through the second floor. The battle to get up the stairwells from the second to the third floor saw acts of heroism and gallantry as great as any seen in other American wars. Countless soldiers who, if the truth was ever known, should have received the Congressional Medal of Honor for actions above and beyond the call of duty fought on selflessly, many finding only death or lifelong disability as the reward. National Guard units, made up as they are of people from certain locations, aren't like regular army formation. Everyone knows each other, often for their whole lives. Their kids go to school together. They attend the same churches and work in the same factories and business. They are more than a band of brothers. They are friends. So there were many instances of lifelong friends and neighbors who watched as their closest to them, the people they loved, were killed and wounded. There was a rising tide of warlike energy that possesses the souls of all involved in pitch battles. In this great battle of Walter Reed, it swirled like a snow nado in a white a force invisible and invincible that motivated these weekend warriors to do things no one else would have even attempted. Lieutenant Colonel Bobby Larson led several squads into one of the shattered stairwells leading from the second to the third floor. He had been ordered to keep the enemy busy as a diversion for the air assault on the third floor. He entered the stairwell and was firing up at the next landing when he thought his life was over. He saw a grenade land at his feet. He instinctively covered his face and jumped back to fall over a pile of bodies made up of people he had known since grade school. Just before the grenade exploded, Tommy Vanderschool jumped on it and absorbed the blast. Bobby lay there alive and unhurt, thinking, and we used to make fun of Tommy for being such a sissy. My God, what a hero. Corporal Johnny Stewart, a boyhood friend and brother of Larson's wife, reached down and grabbed Bobby and gave him a hand up. Come on, Bobby. You can't take a lay down now, he said with a smile. Bobby lived right down the street from the colonel, and unless they were in formal situations, like many people in the brigade, they didn't stand on ceremony. Thinking of the many scrapes and fights they had been in together, growing up on the wrong side of the tracks in Charlestown, Bobby said, Thanks, Johnny. You've always been pulling me out. The bullet entered the back of Johnny's neck in the same small pace between his helmet and his flak jacket that was exposed because of the awkward position he was in, straddling a body and leaning forward to help Bobby up. Bobby screamed, No! in horror as his best friend and brother-in-law's face exploded, showering him with gore that had once been the boy next door. Bobby still didn't have his feet under him, and he fell backwards with the dead weight of Johnny's body on top of him. In his pain and loss, Bobby hugged Johnny, saying, No! 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 In another stairwell on the other side of the building, Lieutenant George Sorison, now armed with an M249 light machine gun, or saw, led several squads of men onto, out, and into what was left of a platform. He was holding the saw with both hands. The long belt of ammunition trailed to the floor and rattled its way up to the firing chamber as he laid down a continuous fire to suppress the terrorists from seeing where to throw their grenades or aim their rifles. Two men who tried to help by feeding the belt or handing him another had already died from ricochet wounds. Bodies of both guardsmen and jihadis lay in heaps around Sorensen's feet as he yelled, Come on, you bastards! Get yourself some of this. He fired until the barrel of the M249 was starting to glow red, and he knew it was about to begin jamming. He threw down the light machine gun and pulled his pistol. He emptied all 15 rounds from the first magazine in his 40 caliber Glock 22. He dropped the magazine and slammed another in place. He could hear the roar, the deep thump, thump, thump that could only be Chinooks landing on the roof. Thinking of Billy and Bubba, and how they died, Lieutenant George Sorison emptied his second magazine. After slamming a third into place, he was once again firing up the stairwell, yelling, This one's for Bubba! This one's for Billy! Over and over as he fired. Then a mighty roar punctured both his eardrums and quickly followed by fire and smoke streaming down the stairwell. The entire building collapsed on top of him and all the men of the 13th Armored Brigade. Thousands, including Lieutenant Colonel Bobby Larson and Lieutenant George Sorson, 
died immediately, crushed under the collapsing floors of Walter Reed Hospital. Hundreds more who were closely surrounding the building were also killed in the initial explosion. Many more would die later from their wounds, and more than another thousand would carry the wounds into lives forever altered by their injuries. Many others would later be diagnosed with a form of ground zero respiratory illness and cancer from breathing the noxious fumes released in the collapse of the building. The wound on Lisa's arm was starting to saturate and bleed through the handkerchief she had someone tie around her left arm. From her paramedic training, she knew she was losing enough blood that it was eventually going to knock her out and then kill her if she didn't get it stopped. There just wasn't time. Looking around the shattered remains of once, what had once been a world-class hospital, she thought, the third floor is clear, but we still have to get to the fourth floor to clean out this nest of snakes. Looking at the dead and wounded, she could see that this fight had already taken a frightful toll on these citizen soldiers who spontaneously rose up to assault battle-hardened and trained warriors in the protection of their homes and their homeland. She was wondering, do we have enough people still to able to fight? We may have to just hold on until more help arrives. Just then, help arrived. It arrived in the form of soldiers from the 66th Infantry Maryland National Guard. From where she sat slumped on a desk, she could see the soldiers coming out of the stairwell on the second floor. She was just about to get up and go over to ask who they were when she noticed that an officer was talking to Sergeant Bushings, who was sitting in a big leather chair by one of the stairwell doors. In a moment, she could see the sergeant point at her and the officer, followed by a sergeant and a few other soldiers, headed her way. I was told that you're Colonel Edwards, said a captain who looked to be about the same age as Lisa. Not used to or very comfortable with being addressed as Colonel, Lisa answered, Well, Captain, that's who they tell me I am. I'm Captain Roberts of the 66th Infantry of the Maryland National Guard, and I've been ordered to coordinate with you in this assault. Captain, as you can see, these civilians are about spent, and we still need to fight our way up the stairwells to the fourth floor to get at the leaders of these ISIS invaders. So if you and your men can help us get at them, let's go cut off the head of the snake, Lisa said. Looking at the blood running down Lisa's left arm and at the way she was leaning over and holding it, he said, Colonel, you look like you might want to consider staying here or better yet, going down to an aid station. I've no intention of leaving this fight until we finish the job, Lisa said. How many men do you have, Captain? We have 5,000 in our brigade and our commander, Colonel Givens, has sent two battalions with close to 1,000 soldiers into the building to assist you, answered Captain Roberts. Standing up, Lisa kept one hand on the desk to steady herself. All right, Captain, let's form up and get up to the fourth floor and end this thing. Calling out to the big room filled with the exhausted and in many cases wounded citizen soldiers who had fought this far with her, Lisa yelled, heads up, everyone, heads up. In the din of conversation, and the sound of firing that was still going on outside into the fourth floor. Her voice, never loud and now cracking from strain and smoke, was largely ignored. She was startled when behind her and out of her line of sight, Captain Roberts raised a whistle to his lips and blew it very loudly. This was greeted with silence, into which she spoke. I want those who fought this far to remain here and hold the third floor. You've done what I'm sure just yesterday None of us thought we could. We've taken back three quarters of this vast hospital from terrorists, but now we're exhausted and we need to use these fresh troops from the National Guard who are here to help. Turning to the captain, Lisa said, there's the plan, Captain. I want these heroes to stay here and rest on their laurels while you and your men follow me up to the fourth floor. Are you sure you don't want to follow your own advice? If you don't go down and get that wound treated, Stay here and let us finish this job, Captain Roberts said. She might not have been used to being a colonel. She may have never risen above the rank of E-8, but she knew that she had been promoted to colonel and that a colonel outranked a captain. So she had an authoritative ring in her voice when she said, This isn't a debate, Captain. 
I'm going to lead this assault. Yes, ma'am, the captain replied. How shall we proceed? Just follow me and don't stop shooting until all these ISIS assholes are dead. Steadying herself by an act of will, Lisa walked to the nearest door leading to the stairwell up to the fourth floor. When she got to the door, she waited until the knot of men following her and Captain Roberts grew into a throng and then into a mass of men eager to take the fight to the enemy. Looking around, she saw that the same thing was developing at each stairwell door. When she thought it looked like enough for a credible assault, she yelled, Charge! and led the way into the stairwell. On the fourth floor in the command center, Abdul Barun, the commander of Strike Force 3, stood stone-faced as Hisham Mikhail, his second in command, reported, Sir, the Crusaders have begun their push up the stairwells from the third floor. Dump all the grenades we have left upon their heads. Kill all the unbeliever dogs you can. When they reach the second landing, let judgment come upon them. As Hisham walked away to carry out his orders, Abdul remembered the day he had been recruited for this glorious mission. It was last summer, right after his whole village had been leveled by the Air Force of that hated puppet of the Crusaders, the Zigdag dog Bashir al-Assad. His wife and eight children had been killed as they ran for cover from a barrel bomb. The resolve to kill as many of the American Crusaders as he could grew into a raging fire as he thought. I was off fighting for the Caliph against the Shia dogs in Iraq. I came home, not to my loving family, graves already grown cold. The sounds of gunfire and hand grenades echoed up the stairwells, mixed with the shouts of warriors and the cries of the wounded. The smell of burning electrical wire mixed with the dust of a building racked and ruined by battle formed a toxic cloud that would have long-lasting effects on all who breathed it and survived. Now a constant fire was smashing windows as ground fire from the many soldiers surrounding the building did their best to keep defenders on the fourth floor pinned down. They didn't know that most of the warriors, the communication techs, and the members of leadership were already dead or dying. Only a few active warriors kept the Americans from breaking through. The nature of fighting up a stairwell being what it was, it only takes a few to hold back many. Lisa, followed by Captain Roberts, was still in the fight, leading their soldiers up one step at a time. Lisa had been wounded a second time. This time it was a jagged cut on her right cheek where a piece of flying masonry cut her face, knocking her to the ground. Captain Roberts helped her up and they continued fighting. The dropping grenades were killing and wounding whole squads at a time, but more and more soldiers kept pushing their way over the dead bodies and piles of wounded. Finally, just as they reached the second landing, they heard shouts of, Allah Akbar! Allah Akbar! And then, as far as they were concerned, the world ended. A tremendous explosion caused by the simultaneous detonation of hundreds of pounds of plastic explosives shook the building. This was all wired together and placed in every room and hallway of the fourth floor, as well as down the stairwells between the second and third landing. The men and women who were fighting in the stairwells never knew what hit them. Those on the first, second, and third floors had a moment of wonder and then of panic as the building crashed in upon itself, killing nearly every person within. Some escaped with life-changing industries, but most died in the crush. Outside, Hundreds more died in the immediate explosion, and thousands later succumbed to wounds and other complications as the once crowned St. Elizabeth Hospital, a landmark in Washington, D.C. since its founding in 1855, came crashing down. Mitch and the Patriots were making headway. The warriors fought for every office, hallway, cubicle, and desk as inch by inch, foot by foot, and yard by yard the Americans killed, wounded, or incapacitated the terrorists. Few survived falling into the hands of the enraged citizens of a free republic under attack by the Islamists. Most were shot where they fell. Some were wounded, rounded up, and sent down to, as prisoners, though few of these made it all the way out before they were summarily shot. In this battle of cultures, there was no quarter given and none asked. 
after the Patriots saw or heard what had been done to the women captives, almost every one of them had no qualms about shooting wounded or unarmed ISIS warriors. On the fourth floor, where Junior Williams found himself in a hand-to-hand -hand struggle with the terrorists, they met in a small office. After throwing a few rounds at each other from behind desks, they both ran out of ammunition. Rolling around locked in a life-and-death struggle, the terrorist proved himself to be both stronger and a better man with a knife. First, he managed to give Junior a slicing wound on his right thigh. Then, recovering from a punch, Junior landed on his left ear. The terrorist was able to slide his blade between the front and back pads of Junior's flak vest. The razor-sharp blade bit a rib, and then sliding between two others, found Junior's heart, and he died instantly as the warrior shoved hard and then twisted the blade. He was kneeling next to Junior's body, wiping the blade on Junior's pant leg and searching his body for ammo when Billy Hill and a few others from Dinwiddie stepped into the room. The man tried to get off his knees, but he never made it as all of their guns tore him apart. Billy ran to his friend's body. Closing Junior's eyes, he swore that he would never rest until every ISIS savage in the world was dead. On the sixth floor, Mitch found himself in the same room with his wife, Joan, and his son, Billy. They all entered the big central room from different directions. After a ferocious firefight cleared the space of terrorists, they had a brief reunion in the center of the room. Mitch and Joan hugged each other, holding on to each other tightly. I love you, said Joan with her tears in her eyes. I love you more, responded Mitch. Then both of them reached out an arm and pulled their son Billy into a group hug. If only Junior was here, we could call this a family reunion, Mitch said. Having come into the room where Junior died right after Billy Hill and the other men from Dinwiddie, Billy knew what had happened to Junior. At his father's words, Billy teared up and said, Junior didn't make it. Some jihadi bastard killed him in a hand-to-hand -hand fight. Oh my God! Joan sobbed as she dropped to her knees. Oh my God, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? She said as tears flowed down her cheeks. Dropping to his knees, Mitch hugged his wife. He and Joan had only been 20 years old when Junior was born. They were stationed in Germany, and the next few years were some of the happiest they had ever known. Junior had always been the golden boy, not just to their nuclear family, but of their extended family as well. The first grandchild, the first nephew, the captain of the football team and the king of the senior prom. He had married his high school sweetheart. Everyone in Dinwiddie loved Junior. Though he was still young, he had already part of a long Southern tradition. In the hearts and minds of all who knew him, Junior had been a good old boy. In the midst of the death and destruction of America's deadliest day since the Battle of Argonne Forest in 1918, two people, both intimately involved in a great and bloody struggle, forgot all about that and held each other as they grieved the loss of their son. Through his own pain, he knew that this was a moment of great loss for his parents. So Billy said, you two stay here. You've done enough. I'm returning to the fight. We still have two more floors to go. Suddenly feeling old and drained of strength, Mitch was about to agree with Billy when Joan said, no way. I want to see the last one of these murdering ISIS bastards when he draws his last breath so I can shoot him one more time for Junior. Mitch was shocked by the ferocity he heard in Joan's voice. He had known her all of his life. He had loved her most of it. And he knew her to be the sweetest, most loving person he had ever known. She was a model mother who had carted kids to and from football and soccer, baked the best berry pies in the county, and loved life with all her heart. He could well understand her thirst for revenge. He felt it himself. He was just surprised to hear his petite little soulmate sound so deadly. Standing up, the three moved into the battle. Picking up extra magazines and hand grenades off fallen warriors, they were soon jumping over bodies and firing up, always up, as they and the other patriots made their way up the stairwell from the sixth to the seventh floor, on the seventh floor, they were attacking a group of jihadis that were pinned down behind a makeshift wall of tipped-over desks. Billy rose up a little too high to throw a hand grenade, 
and just as he was about to let it go, he was hit in the shoulder. Spinning around and falling, Billy dropped that grenade with no pin that was about to explode. Joan jumped over to Billy and cradled him in her lap, crying out, No! No! Mitch reached out and grabbed the grenade and flipping it upwards towards the terrorist. It didn't make it all the way. But when it exploded in the air over their heads, the burning shrapnel knocked them out of the fight long enough for some other patriots to run up from the other side of the room with a long burst of fire from their AR-15s take them out. Billy wasn't so badly hurt that he was going to die, but he was hurt bad enough to knock him out of the fight. The losses among the Virginia Patriots were high and constantly growing higher. Most of the Dinwiddie Patriots were either dead or out of action. However, their ranks were being expanded constantly as more and more soldiers from the 47th Infantry Virginia National Guard came in to help in the assault. The building was packed with enraged Americans, just itching to get close enough to kill one of these invaders. Like so many other times in their wonderful, loving, fulfilling 29 years of marriage, Mitch and Joan Williams were side by side. Only this time they weren't sharing a family moment, working to make a better life for themselves and their children. Nor were they looking lovingly into each other's eyes as they repeated their favorite toast, all because two people are still in love. No, this time they were side by side, fighting their way up a crowded stairwell to the seventh, from the seventh to the eighth floor of the Virginia Hospital Center in Arlington, Virginia, when, like a bolt of lightning and a clap of thunder, the stairwell in the entire eighth floor exploded so powerfully that it could be heard and seen and felt miles away. The building came down as if it were made of Legos, had a bowling ball dropped on it. Bricks and steel girders shattered and melted and flew in all directions. The main portion of the building shuddered and then sagged in upon itself, trapping the thousands of patriots and soldiers who were inside in what became a death trap. Anyone within 50 yards of the building was dead. In concentric circles spreading out from the epicenter, the injuries changed the lives of thousands. For the first time since 1865, war had come to the Old Dominion. General Rick Stamper sat at his desk in the VH-3D Sea King helicopter that had been he had commandeered from Andrews Air Force Base. The machine had been specially fitted out for the use of the President and had served several times as Marine One. In this large helicopter, Stamper had the best communications available as well as superior defensive and offensive capabilities. General Stamper, we're receiving reports that both St. Elizabeth's and the Virginia Hospital Center have exploded as our guys were about to reach the top floor, just like Walter Reed, said Sergeant Julie Barnes. Sitting across his desk was Colonel Ben Summers, the commander of the 101st Combat Aviation Brigade, which Stamper had ordered from the Langley Air Force Base in Hampton, Virginia. Reacting to the news of what was happening in the different battle sites, Stamper said, Ron, if I pull all my men out of the Adventist Hospital, can your boys bring the place down around the jihadis' heads? Yes, sir, we sure can. Have your men fall back at least 100 yards and take cover. My Apaches and our Hellfire missiles will give you one hell of a burning crater where that hospital is standing right now, answered Captain Rogers. Sergeant Vines, get me Lieutenant Colonel Smith on the horn. Yes, sir, said Sergeant Barnes as she left to contact the joint Delta SEAL team in the field. In a moment, Sergeant Barnes returned to announce, the team leadership is on the line. One, sir. Picking up the phone on his desk, he hit the speaker button and said, Huffy, this is situation here. What is it there? Sir, this is Captain Grady. Colonel Smith is dead. Captain Sanders Sharif is badly wounded. So I'm senior officer in command. All right, Jim, what's the situation? We've cleared six floors. We're firing our way up the stairway well from the 6th to the 7th floor right now. It's been rough, sir. These jihadis are well-trained and well-equipped. They aren't giving up without a fight for each room and desk. Our men are doing their duty and then some. The police said civilians who showed up to help have filled the ranks and fought like tigers, sir. And, sir, after we cleared the first floor, the terrorists sent out about 50 women, most of them naked and badly beaten. They were all raped, General. They said the terrorists sent them out to tell us what they were going to do and to kill all our women. 
and they shot all the patients, sir, feeling a deep regret that his longtime friend Huffy Smith had bought the farm. But shoving the sadness down for another day, as well as a deep rage for the way these invaders were treating American women and the helpless patients, Stamper said, Jim, I want you to stop the assault immediately and pull back. Pull all your men out. Move back at least 100 yards and take cover. But we can take that top floor, sir. I know we can, responded Captain Grady. I have no doubt that you can, Jim. But here's what's happening. At the other three sites, as soon as our guys reached about halfway up the stairwells to the top floor, the ISIS murderers blew the buildings. We haven't seen any charges. There have been plenty of booby traps, but we haven't seen any evidence that the building has been wired. They haven't set the whole building to blow, just the top floor and the top half of all the stairwells. They're using enough C4 to take down the whole building when the top blows up and it'll collapse. So get your men out of there. Let me know when you make cover and we'll have the Apaches bring the damn place down around their ears. Yes, sir. We'll begin evacuating the building immediately. Good work today, Grady. Be safe and get my men out of there, ordered Stamper. Yes, sir, responded Grady as he moved immediately to follow his orders. About 10 minutes later, American regular and citizen soldiers were streaming out of every door, window, and hole in the wall and running away from the building. Small rear guard units were keeping the jihadis from coming back down the stairwells to attack the retreating Americans. On the top floor, Hassam El Komar, second in command of Strike Force Two, approached his commander, Muhammad Abbas, and said, Brother, the Crusaders have stopped their advance up the stairwells, and their soldiers are fleeing the building in every direction. They must have learned of our plan to send them to hell as we go to paradise, replied Mahum. Calling out lousy, loudly as he could, the commander of Strike Force Two dressed the room, spilled with men who had plotted and planned this attack, men he had known through good and bad. They were his band of brothers. My brothers, the Crusaders have learned of our ultimate surprise, and the cowards are fleeing as I speak. I will now throw the switch and send them all to hell, and I will see you this day in paradise. Shouts of Allah Akbar, Allah Akbar, filled the room. Their leader, Muhammad Abazak, heard the shouts with a feeling of fulfillment. He was a former doctor whose career of helping the needy ended one day when an American plane dropped a 500-pound bomb in his home compound. It killed his entire extended family at his oldest daughter's wedding by mistake. They were supposed to bomb the neighbor who was a jihadi commander. After the funerals of his loved ones, he moved in with his neighbor and started his journey to the Adventist Hospital in Washington, D.C. With the victorious shouts of his brothers in his ears, Muhammad threw the switch that set off almost a thousand pounds of C4 placed strategically all over the eighth floor. The blast shattered windows half a mile away. The firestorm had created flashed down the stairwells and consumed the rear guard units before they knew what happened. About a third of the Americans had exited the building. Several hundred were far enough away from the blast and the concussion didn't kill them immediately. Hundreds who initially survived were doomed to die later after lingering for weeks and sometimes months. Others sustained life-changing, debilitating injuries. Still others would later be diagnosed with respiratory diseases and cancers that would be linked to the massive blast. Thank you, Robert, for that. And I hope that you're all just sitting on the edge of your seat waiting for the end to come. <laughs> oh yeah, this is fun. Don't forget, uh, he told you how you, you can purchase this book, but we also want you know to contact us if you have anything to say or ask us to do anything or not to do something like maybe laugh for 10 minutes at the beginning of the show. There is a website you can go to. www.itookarightturn.com and there's a place to contact us and a form you can fill in and they'll send the information right to us. Yeah! <laughs> what a deal! The internet! Modern wow. technology. Oh man, it's not even that modern anymore. I mean, I it's been around for but a while. And it's working still. Remember when we first ran into the internet? Uh, everybody out there is probably old enough to remember when you first saw the internet, because most of us can remember before there was an internet, although... Oh, there's a whole lot who cannot uh, remember that. I teach college students 
that were have were born since 9/11. To them, that's ancient history. What are you talking about? That's a war. Come on, that's the old days. Yeah. You know, but uh, we also want to let you know about the Paradox Shop. If you go to the paradoxshop.com, you can see all our paintings and, you know, buy originals, prints, limited editions, merchandise cups. Cell phone covers. Yes. Puzzles. Oh, yeah, we just finished a puzzle yeah. from one of our paintings, yeah. and it was quite uh, an experience. It, it was. It was the first puzzle I ever really worked on, and uh, it, it challenged us. We worked on it. For a week, we had the border in. Well, we had a little more than <laughs> a little more than I had little before. corners here and there, yeah, yeah. and then we got a visit from the kids on Sunday, and guess what? The puzzle's all done. <laughs> yeah, one hour and boom, they were done. You know, wow, you know, that's, that's good. <laughs> we had fun, but go to theparadoxshop.com, and if you need to know how to spell us, go to I took a right turn and ask us, and we'll tell you. <laughs> We'll send it to you. You won't have to try and spell it out here online or on the cast or whatever. I'm getting the look. <laughs> this is some of that silly jibber jabber. Jibber jabber. Yeah. So we hope you enjoyed the episode this week and uh, we'll be back. We'll be back. <laughs> <laughs>